And a woman came up to me and said, I'm here because of the big issue. I said, oh, that's nice. And, and she, she said, I'm from Newcastle. And I thought, I don't know you. And I said, oh, oh when did you start? And she said, no, no, I don't work for you, uh, for the big issue. So, um, my dad was one of your early vendors. And, and, and because of that, um, um, it saved his life. And because of that, he had a family. And because of that, I went to university and I was determined that I wanted to work in a social enterprise um, when I graduated. And, and there she was, that, that story of prevention. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Welcome to Connected Leadership Gold. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me and a very Merry Christmas to you. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be dipping into the archives and visiting classic Connected Leadership podcasts from the last couple of years, particularly going back a little while. And for our first dip into those archives, we're going back to around Christmas time two years ago. Uh, when I interviewed Nigel Kershaw, the chairman of the Big Issue and Big Issue Invest, uh, it felt it felt appropriate at this time of year to think about people who aren't as fortunate as many of us uh, and find themselves homeless at this time of year. So, a conversation with the founder of the Big Issue seemed like the right type of conversation to share, just to reflect on others uh, while we enjoy this time with our families. I hope you're having a great Christmas. Uh, enjoy this interview. I hope it provokes some thought. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I was delighted to be joined this week by Nigel Kershaw, the chairman of The Big Issue, Big Issue Invest and The Big Issue Exchange. Uh, Nigel is someone that I've known for a number of years who has been involved with The Big Issue journey from very near the the, the, the start of the journey um, and who's been passionate about the mission and the values uh, that The Big Issue has introduced and has been pursuing, not just in the UK, uh, but in 100 countries around the world. So that means that you are probably or quite possibly aware of the big issue. If you're not, it's the magazine uh, that is sold by homeless people um, to help them get them back on their feet, rebuild some self-respect and confidence and uh, help to, to, to drive them forward into a more stable uh, life. So I, I I really wanted to have a chat with Nigel and understand a little bit more about the journey of the big issue, the relationships involved in, and from our conversation, you know, and from conversations we've had before, I think the most interesting relationship is the relationships with the vendors, uh, either between the big issue uh, team and the vendors or the vendors and their clients. So, and we have uh, some, an interesting chat uh, about that, um, but also to understand uh, the moves beyond just selling a magazine into financial markets. Uh, obviously, we do talk about the big issue of invest in the big exchange. Uh, neither Nigel nor I are giving financial advice here, so please take it in the spirit it's given uh, and not as a recommendation. I should also say that we recorded this at the very beginning of November of last year, year uh, and November and on a day in fact when we went back into a second lockdown in the UK so that will um, make a couple of the comments uh, during the conversation a um, a little bit more understandable uh, and give them some context 
So I started out by asking Nigel, um, you know, we're probably in danger of taking the big issue for granted now. It's such an accepted part of so many societies around the world. But it was great groundbreaking at the time that it came out. And I, I asked Nigel, you know, what, how that happened. Well, really, it started from um, Gordon Roddick, uh, the late, great Anita Roddick's uh, husband, who was in New York. And he saw... Um, uh, a, a black guy selling a, 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 a paper surrounded by white people. Now this was the 90s and New York was a tough place and he thought that's interesting. What's going on? And he saw this guy and the guy said, look, I'm selling this magazine produced by homeless people and um, uh, I'm a two-time loser from upstate New York. Um, and uh, I heard about this magazine, so I'm selling this magazine um, to keep me out of trouble and uh, to get away from where he was staying. And Gordon kind of did two things. She sort of wrapped him over the knuckles for, for, the, for thinking, what was this guy doing? Um, and thinking, well, that's an interesting idea. And he then got in touch with his old, an old friend he knew from before, John Bird, um, and off it went. Um, and it really was groundbreaking because it wasn't a charity. It was always set up as a business solution to the, to the crisis. So we sell the magazine of £1.50 to the vendors. They buy it, sell it on for £3. So right now, until lockdown, our 2,100 vendors on the streets are all micro-entrepreneurs. So it really was a different approach um, than the traditional charity. So, so when um, Gordon Roddick and John Bird brought the idea to the UK uh, and started to implement it, there must have been a huge amount of pushback, I would imagine, in one form or another. What were the biggest hurdles and obstacles that they faced um, at the time? Well, it's two. One is from the, from the vendors themselves who are saying, I've got all this free charity. Why aren't you giving me the magazine? Um, and so, uh, yeah. That, that was the first thing. And actually, we're saying, actually, this is work. This is, this is how you can earn a living rather than beg or steal or welfare. Or This is about uh, work and move on. So the first thing was this kind of everybody used to charity. And the other thing was actually from the charities themselves were saying, um, a number of them were saying, well, what do you know about homelessness? Even though John said, well, well I was homeless. Um, but... Uh, and, and, and getting their heads around that this was a, a, a social enterprise, um, a social business, as we called it then, and not a charity. But it really was that mix because, you know, we've got a, a mission lock and, you know, an asset lock and a dividend lock. And uh, John and I, I think, are probably the, uh, are worth about a pound each, you know, um, I think it is in my... Um, for, for the business. So everything is, is that is earned. I mean, if I came to you um, 30, nearly 30 years ago and said, look, I've got this great idea for a magazine. It's going to be um, a colour, four-colour magazine. It's going to be um, uh, win awards all over the place. It's going to be replicated in 100 countries around the world. Um, it's going to... Um, uh, be called the last bastion of independent reporting. And um, oh, by the way, I, I should say that it's, you can't buy it in the shops. You can only buy it for homeless and vulnerable housed people. And, um, and by the way, um, we're going to make, the more money we make, the more the, our vendors earn. 
but then we're going to mug ourselves onto the way to the bank and give it back um, to, in, into our mission um, to get our vendors. And our mission is to get those vendors off the streets to put ourselves out of business. Now, how crazy is that? You know? um, but you made a huge success of it. So, so where did you come into this, Nigel? You know, you talked about Gordon contacting John when he got back. I know you've been involved from the very beginning or very near too. You know, where did you come into to the frame? Well, I was um, uh, a printer. Um, uh, I was a, and I was travelling around the world, setting up large newspaper plants. And um, but I'd been a what you now call a social entrepreneur, except I was uh, I had set up four cooperative printing and publishing houses. Um, I was a union activist in the print union, and like a lot of things in the early nineties, that really re-evaluating where, you know, where old socialists like me and, and, and John had been um, and thinking, well, actually, maybe we, we could look at a business solution um, to, to the social crisis. So I saw the big issue, wrote to John when it was a year old, um, and uh, we met up and got on really well. And I was just saying to John, look, while I'm not traveling around the world doing all these things, um, love to give a hand so gave a hand and then in 94 um, chucked it all in to to join up it's so, been quite a journey since then you I mean we're going to come on and talk about the way you've expanded it you're way beyond just I'd say just a, a magazine now but you've gone beyond that initial um, start but um I would be interested to know before we get into it, you know, this is the connected leadership podcast. The, the, the premise is that for leaders, strong professional relationships underpin all their success, everything they're trying to do. And I'm sure that taking something like the big issue from concept to delivery um, relationships had to be key. You've already talked about pushback from, from the potential sellers. Um, so which were relationships were key? Let's start by talking about your relationship with your sellers. How, how has that evolved over time from that initial pushback? Uh, where have the challenges come? Well, I think the, the challenges have always been there is that some people, um, uh, it, uh, they're selling the magazine because of something that's happened in their lives. Um, and they're buying the magazine from people who, on the whole, we have, um, haven't experienced what, what our sellers are, are doing. So there is always that thing about those people who are on the street selling the magazine and those who are off the streets um, creating the magazine. What I think is so interesting is, and, and, and it's so different from a, a traditional charity, um, is that there is an interdependency in, in the terms of the business can't survive without the sellers and the sellers can't survive without the business um, uh, in terms of the magazine. So that's a very different relationship between, between uh, being a, 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 a giver and a receiver um, in a more charitable sort of, uh, in a more charitable way. Um, so I think it's a, it's a more equal relationship in a way um, because, because of that interdependency. And when, when we first met, and that's, it must be over a decade ago now, I think, um, you invited me to an event at the Roundhouse um, for your sellers, the Roundhouse in Camden, just, just in London. Yeah. Um, 
And, uh, you know, it was really fascinating for me to see that connection between the sellers and, and the, 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 uh, the team at the top, if you like, the management team of the big issue, and actually the buy-in um, to the whole concept that I saw in those sellers. Um, and also I interviewed Stephen Robertson, your CEO, um, for, for Just Ask. And Stephen was talking about um, the respect that um, the self-respect and respect to the community that selling the big issue gives to the people involved. Um, I think there's something in those relationships and that business connection that has a very positive impact uh, on helping them along with their journey as well. Yeah, I think so. Particularly um, um, during during the lockdowns, um, uh, our frontline staff, we were in touch with 1,600 vendors every week. Um, giving support. We, obviously, we gave financial support in terms of cash and vouchers, but a lot of that support was about those kind of personal relationships. Um, and so, sixteen hundred people had telephone calls, and you know, from our frontline staff, and that relationship can be very, very deep. Um, uh, and 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 it's a mission-driven business, and the staff are driven by the mission, and, and the mission is people. And I'm just going to ask you about the impact of, of the pandemic and lockdown on the sellers as well. Um, because, I mean, obviously it's got to affect them in a number of ways from the just pure human uh, impact for those who, who are living on the streets to um, the fact that their customers aren't around. You know, if they're in a city centre during lockdown, no one else is. Um, so you've touched on the sort of support you've given them, but how have they coped throughout the pandemic because obviously that that could have a huge uh, break effect on on their progress well uh, uh, f- starting from the business side producing the magazine on march the 22nd whenever it was we had seventy-five thousand pound a week for uh, for income for the business and, and seventy-five thousand pound a week for the vendors gone just overnight one hundred fifty thousand a week gone um and yeah, we had re, uh, uh, reserves to get ourselves through um, a short period. We didn't know what what was going to go, you know, what was going to happen. So we went into um, battle mode. Um, we raised two million pounds. Um, we uh, said supported sixteen hundred vendors. We with around six hundred thousand pounds worth of cash and vouchers um, and and the support around that. And, and we just had to, we just had to, we had to survive, um, both as a, uh, as for our vendors and for our business. But what was really interesting about that was the pivot that we had to make as well. That the money we raised was n- not just to support the vendors, but to pivot the business. Um, and we'd always gone in, we always knew that we needed a digital pivot within the, within the business. Um, so we had to, pivot at the same time as survive. Um, and we had to find a way of pivoting that still kept that um, hand up, not a handout, that self-help ethos. Because it'd be very, you, you can't just produce a magazine and say, subscribe to this magazine and we'll give it to, to vulnerable people because you might as well be that charity that we're not. Yeah. Um, so, so that pivot was being really interesting as well. So, um, looking about how vendors can be more uh, connected digitally. So we're 
we've got a digital wallet coming where um, the, the, the people can buy the magazine and, and it goes into a wallet and that wallet can be used for cash. It can be used for all sorts of things to help, help those sellers what they want to do to get off the streets and all that kind of stuff. We've got um, uh, subscriptions, digital subscriptions, where that money will go in to flow into that wallet. We've just doing a, a Google um, uh, map so that if you make a subscription, wherever you live, it'll go to your local vendor and all that sort of stuff. Um, so it really, as adversity does, it really drives you into, into innovation. I have to say that a lot of the corporates we've been working with, whether, you know, um, have just said it was a, a, one of the biggest digital pivots they've seen at speed. So um, it, was a, it was an incredible time. But of course, we're, we're back into battle. Yeah, um, and on Monday, vendors off the street in England, Wales been off the street. We estimate that at this time, like lots of retailers, that the run up to Christmas, we're going to lose one point two million pounds. That'll be six hundred thousand pounds for the vendors and six hundred thousand for the for for the business. So uh, we're back into battle. I mean, we've never been out of battle, but um. and and what sort of role have they? the vendors played in that pivot and in those discussions? Have they been very actively engaged in the, the direction of the business? Where we can, um, uh, and our staff really want to test everything against, against this vendors. It's no point having the great, great ideas if nobody's going to take them up. Um, so, uh, and one of the things we've been doing is, is, is having the cashless on the street um, and again, driven by by the by the tragic pandemic, but um, so we have more and more vendors taking up the cashless on the street. So that um, and that links in with that digital pivot. But if the vendors don't want to take the cashless, then then what's the point? Interestingly enough, what we can demonstrate is that if if you are cashless, you you get greater sales. So there's also a you know um, there's also a self interest to be cashless. So so there's that element of finding the early uh, adopters, getting them to yeah. prove the point, yeah. and then getting the message out to the rest of the network of vendors. Well, we had a vendor who had actually um, just be- before this had three different ways of going cashless, um, three <laughs> different machines and everything else. Yeah. Um, I think there's a real lesson in there as well. In the, the, the there's an, uh, I've been talking about this a lot over the last few days. Uh, it, it's come up quite a lot that there's an assumption uh, in business that all the all the ideas and the direction comes from the leadership, and people further down in an organisation, their role is um, just technical, get on with the job. But the best innovation can come from anywhere in the organization ideas can come from anywhere so if you're embracing that then that's you're going to find the solution so much more quickly as well yes although it's an interesting because uh, a lot of the innovation and, and what we've uh, in the big issue has come from where we've gone outside the big issue and i don't want to go on to that now to already but things like big issue invest and big exchange and so on we've incubated outside the main the main uh, company um, because particularly I think with what we're doing and, uh, and I think there's an absolutely incredible innovation within the core business for the core business because people's, people are really focused um, on, on what's going on, particularly now. But sometimes if you, if you have the ideas, and John and I have 
found this over many years. Um, people looking and saying, oh God, not another idea. And um, um, can't we just get on with our work? And um, I can't cope with nothing else, and et cetera. And how am I going to resource that? And I haven't got time to do that. So sometimes I think that incubation works well outside the core business, that, that innovative incubation. But I, I think the innovation within the core business often comes from people just having that idea. So, um, and, and, and as you know, then it's um, how does I, how, how are the, those ideas listened to? Yeah, yeah. So I want to come on, uh, as you sort of touched on, I want to come on and talk about uh, the foundation and the big exchange, um, as well as your, your external contacts and, the, and external relationships and the impact they've had. Before we do, there's just a couple of more things on, on the, the magazine and the, and the idea of the big issue that I'm, I'm really fascinated by. So um, you talked about, you know, it's 30 years or so since, since the big issue uh, came into being. That was a different world to the world we live in now. We've changed in so many ways. Um, how did you go about changing people's perception of homeless people? Because I think that was a big part of what the big issue has always been about. Um, mm. But at the time, there was a lot of homelessness on the streets in the 80s, in, in London, certainly, and around the UK. Um, and, and people would swerve to avoid. And, and then to ask those people that, many people were swerving to avoid to start selling a magazine to them uh, meant a, a huge shift in the perception of them. So how did you get, how did you go about that and, and how successful do you think you've been? Well, I think one is the, um, it's, it's, well, what we said was we literally changed the face of homelessness because for suddenly there was a homeless person that you went up to and bought a magazine from. Um, and that was, uh, that that was groundbreaking. It wasn't just somebody putting out their hands and, and asking for asking for more. It was here's a magazine. Now that might or might not look interesting to you, but you'd go up and talk to somebody. You'd go up and and you know what? For loads of people, um, I'm just talking from, from from observation. Sometimes people coming, you know, say London commuters going walking across the bridge, it might be the only person they actually ever talk to from when they leave their house to getting into work. And so that, those personal relationships built up um, uh, between the vendor um, uh, and the buyer. And, and I think that was, we called it, a, uh, it, it was a social interaction. Um, it was a social pound, if you like, because not only was there a social um, interaction between the buyer and seller, but once you gave over your money to buy that magazine, there was an instant social change because that person had, had earned that money just like that when you buy in the magazine. So there was a feeling of actually I'm doing something immediate. Um, <clears throat> and we really hope that also people liked the magazine and went back for the magazine. And, um, but it's a total conflict, you know. Um, um, who would have thought, as you say, like, you know, a social business... Uh, a social business would sit next to a business business, you know, it was, um, but yeah, it changed the face and people, those relationships built up between buyer and seller and many, many stories, you know, including marriages. Have you subscribed to the Connected Leadership podcast yet to make sure that you never miss an episode? For more resources from Andy, including a regular tips newsletter, videos, blogs, and more podcasts, please visit andylapata.com forward slash insights.
that's that's fantastic. I mean, I, I've I've been fascinated for a long time about as I've heard those stories about the relationships between um, buyers and, and and big issue vendors. And of course, there's a famous film and book now, is Street Cat Lane, yeah. um, which I loved, and, and I just really brought that humanity uh, across as well. I didn't know about the marriages, so that's that's fan, uh, fascinating. Um, so yeah, so when we're looking at the different relationships, I think actually probably the most compelling relationships in the whole story are those ones: the the vendors and the sellers, and how sorry the vendors and the buyers, and, and how just that whole way um, homeless people in the UK and and as you say in over a hundred countries now, how the perception has completely shifted. Um, but you know, once you know, we're now used to the big issue. We're used to seeing it on our streets. We know the story now. Um, at the risk of sounding cynical, it's lost its novelty uh, as a story. So, how you know, you you are a campaigning organisation in a lot of ways. You have a voice. John Bird is now Lord Bird. You know that it, it's it's not just about publishing a magazine. How do you keep yourselves at the top of the agenda when that novelty is worn off? Uh, hard. <laughs> uh, um, I think um, it, there's certain things though that always challenges. I'm, I'm going to answer that. I'm not being a politician here, but um, <laughs> Leave that to John. one of the misconceptions is that we are a charity um, and saying, well, actually, you know, we're not a charity. We, we, are, we live or die in a marketplace. And our vendors live or, live or die in a marketplace. And I think the biggest thing, the thing that hasn't changed is people saying, well, this is a lovely charity. And, 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 and that's been the, the biggest challenge over 30 years, you know, coming up to 30 years in our 30th year, um, uh, is that perception that, that, that business can actually um, uh, create solutions uh, and not charity. I mean, I'm not saying charity doesn't create solutions and philanthropy can do some great things, but the sustainability of a business solution is long term. Um, so so on, the, on that topic, you know, your role since I've known you has very much been focused on those external projects that, that you, you touched upon. Um, so for a long time after we met, uh, and I'm sure still going forward, the Big Issue Foundation um, was what you were talking about whenever our paths crossed uh, and now the big exchange has been launched and and you're, you're focusing on no, that it was, sorry it was big issue invest so it was, big issue invest, it was yes yeah. absolutely i apologize yes it was big issue as I, as i said that it felt wrong uh big issue invest um and now it's the big exchange so how did you um make that step away from purely the focus on the magazine uh what was the drive behind that and and, and what have been you know what maybe you can explain big issue invest and and the big exchange first of all i think that would probably be the best approach um well uh, big issue invest i can tell you how it how how it happened and uh, was it, it was instinct um from john myself so and and pay tribute to somebody um uh, a guy called John Norton, who was Mo Molan's husband, for those that remember okay. Mo Molan, who's a, um, I'd known from the Labour Party in very uh, in in the seventies. Um, anyway, and John Norton was her husband, who was a merchant banker that gave it all up to be an artist, and um, and we we met up, 
and um, uh, he was saying we were we were thinking about all how to help vendors. We were looking at credit and debt and all these things that could help. And we'd we'd had an investment and we'd we'd done a, a venture, a recycling uh, curbside recycling um, venture with Camden Council, employing vendors. And we so we were always thinking about new things to do and whatever. And John was saying, well, maybe there's um, a, a way of of extending your mission through. Um, through investing in businesses and things. So, um, so we were thinking about that. And then I went off to America, um, end of 99 to about 2002, setting up um, Big Issue. And I learned an awful lot about social finance out there, or social investment. Um, and they were far ahead of what we were doing then. In the meantime, John in London had set up something called Social Brokers. Um, and he and and he just rang up and said, "No, should we do a social bank?" And I said, "All right, off we go." No idea how to do this, <laughs> um, not a clue. But it felt right. And now, in retrospect, we can see the strategy. Yeah, but it just felt right to be. How do we extend our mission by supporting other social, growing other social enterprises and other social businesses? And then it really interesting because it. Everything's been bottom up with the big issue. Um, it's going back to what you were saying about the vendors. So, you know, everything was about financial inclusion. So, um, uh, the, the vendors uh, selling the magazine. We used to keep vendors' money behind the behind the counter, and there was a double entry book which went in and out. And then some, somebody from the FSA then said, "Who I knew." Um, so it said, Nigel, you realise you're running a bank here. He said, no, 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 we're not, we're not, no. All we're doing is protecting our vendors from being mugged in the street. 30, 40% of our vendors in central London were being mugged in the streets by other homeless people. It was rough. You know, those, those crack cocaine days of the, of the 90s were, were pretty tough. Um, so, and then the HBOS, the Halifax Bank of Scotland, now Lord, opened up a branch of the Halifax Bank of Scotland in our Glasgow office on a Thursday afternoon, I think it was. So that was the first time that the people without an address or, a, or were moving around all the time could get a bank account. And they won the Business in the Community Award for doing it. And they thought, oh, this is good. And um, they gave us 120,000 um, pounds out of their marketing budget, which led to the business plan for Big Issue Invest. And the whole idea was just to grow other social enterprise and extend our mission. Um, so we, and key to what you're talking around leadership and relationships, we got people that believed in what we were doing, both as, as, as non-execs and execs to deliver this, to deliver this mad idea that we could become a social merchant bank. Um, it wasn't mad at all. And you know, now we're managing or advising on around 300 million pounds worth of impact funds um, and, and invested in 400 social enterprises throughout the UK. Really just as an extension of our mission. Um, looking back on it, it seemed a very logical you know, strategic move. At the time, I can tell you, there was no strategy involved at all. And the, um, you know, you, you talked earlier 
and you stressed earlier the importance and the distinction of being a business over being a charity. Do you think that, and you mentioned the corporates that have got involved with you and obviously with the Merchant Bank that, you know, you'll have had a number of high level investors um, with that, that kind of funds under management. Do you, um, do you think that having that business focus looking for for to invest in the right businesses but they need to be sustainable they need to have a future that that changes the willingness of those corporates to engage with you they're making a business decision rather than a a a social a a social benefit a csr decision Mm -hmm. well it ranges right across the the boards yeah some are doing it as a csr some are doing charitable some are seeing it as business some are seeing it as you know, coming out of treasury, um, quite a lot see it as a, a staff engagement is, is huge mm. in some of the programs we run. So it's right across the board, but it's interesting going back to, to Root, you know, and if you can remember uh, Anita's, uh, you know, the body shop um, wagons going down the street, on one side it was about peppermint foot lotion, and on the other side it was about domestic violence or fair trade, and there, there was no conflict between between that because actually it was the values, um, they were marketing the values of the company. And I think, you know, that has really changed in terms of CSR where people really are thinking about what is the value of my company? What is the mission of my company? So at the body shop, they didn't have a CSR committee. They had a a vision and mission, something or other group. Um, And I think we're seeing more and more of that of businesses looking at what is their purpose beyond just shareholder value. So when you when you are looking for investors, when you're talking to investors, you're looking for, for those values as much a, a part of the conversation as anything else, and looking for that match. I think yeah, um, and I think that's that's like any normal, not normal. That's like most businesses. If the investor isn't aligned, um, you're probably in trouble. You're either desperate or in trouble, um, and we've been both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tell me, uh, I'm interested, you mentioned that a number of uh, the projects you're, you're funding, you're involved with, uh, uh, build team building around them. Can you just share an example of that and what that involves? Um, yeah, we've done some, I was talking about it the other day, actually, with, we've got something called the Corporate Social Venturing Programme. And we've got corporates and they put in some money um, in a pooled investment uh, pot. Um, and then we get, we call for very early stage social enterprises um, and we invest in them and we give them the support to grow through the corporates. Um, they all come to something which I call the caterpillar's cocoon because it's the antithesis of the dragon's den. <laughs> it's like everybody has a two day pitching event. They all pitch together, work together. The corporate, well, not in the last year, obviously, but um, so we've had some really interesting scale-ups there. Um, and it's not all about scale-ups. I think people get obsessed with scale-ups sometimes and mm. you look away from, the, takes you away from mission, actually. There are lots of great enterprises doing great things deep in their community that will never scale. Um, but everybody loves the scale-up stories, so I'll tell you the scale-up stories. Um, so digital mums. Um, which is now, you know, uh, a, a, a big, you know, there's 1.2 million mums that can't go to work in the UK. 
Digital Mums teaches them how to be uh, social media managers so they can do that at home. Then they pair them up with local SMEs, charities, social enterprises that can't afford full-time social media managers. And you've got an outs traditional outsourcing business in a completely different way. Um, and I remember when we did our Caterpillar's Cocoon at one o'clock in the morning, uh, a director of Barclays saying, you, we want to mentor that. I don't care. We're going to mentor that one. And, and I'm, I'm being hounded by, their, by them doing that. We've had we've, corporates, um, uh, MD of Experian, um, who, who supported us saying, this is the change way, I, this changed the way I look at things. Um, right now, we've got a, a program in Scotland supported by Aberdeen Standard Investment, um, um, the Scottish Government, uh, University of Edinburgh, Brodies, um, anyway. And that's been great. And we've had something called Hey Girls, which has um, been had a lot of publicity. It's supporting um, uh, pov um, period poverty. And with the, now the supermarkets doing a lot of, you know, one for ones in terms of, uh, of supporting uh, young women at school and so on. And, and it's been an extraordinary um, journey. It's fantastic the impact you can make and the way that it's expanded from that one idea into something that, that's covering a lot more of society than, than, than homeless and, and, uh, and people who, who don't have a permanent uh, uh, place to live. Um, because it's all about, sorry, because it's all about prevention. Yeah. Um, and future generations. And John's putting for, you know, a bill called Future, future Generations um, in the Lords. Um, it's all about, yeah, it's all about prevention. 90% of all charity goes on uh, Band-Aid and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I'm not saying, but it's not solution. And I think the prevention for us is the key. So if we run all, everything through that, that lens of prevention um, for now and for future generations, which is part of that, that mission, um, then you start to see where it, it immediately slots in that investment in other social enterprises doing the same thing. And I remember when we set up, I think it was the first Good Deals conference, a very early uh, social investment conference. And a woman came up to me and said, I'm here because of the big issue. I said, oh, that's nice. And, and she, she said, I'm from Newcastle. And I thought, I don't know you. And I said, oh, oh when did you start? And she said, no, no, I don't work for you, uh, for the big issue. She said, um, my dad was one of your early vendors. And, and, and because of that, um, um, it saved his life. And because of that, he had a family. And because of that, I went to university and I was determined that I wanted to work in a social enterprise um, when I graduated. And, and there she was, that, that story of prevention. Um, I wish it was all like that, um, but those things really do stick in your mind. Yeah. Those are the stories that make it all the hard work and the, the one pound in your bank account worthwhile, aren't they? Exactly. And, and of course, you've got to measure what your impact is and you've got to assess what your impact is. But... You know, it's both qualitative and quantitative in, in terms of, of looking at the impact that, that you can make both with a magazine and with the, the 400 investments that we've made. Finally, you, you know, we, we, we've talked about Big Issue Invest. You've got the big exchange that's, that's launched um, recently as well. Um, what are you doing with the big exchange? Well, that, that, that was just, that was um, 
I can't describe this one really. Uh, but so in about 2011, um, I, I was, when we'd launched one of our, our first limited partner funds, and the limited partner funds to get in, you have to be a high net worth, a qualified investor, institutional investor, have a, ha have a foundation or a trust or family office, whatever. And I was doing this city talk, uh, um, and somebody said, well, why can't the ordinary big issue reader invest in your funds? And of course they couldn't. So it really made us think, uh, you know, of what we've been calling the democratization of capital. How can everybody, um, how can you make this accessible to everybody? Um, and so we launched something, met a guy, Campbell Fleming, from, who was the CEO of, of Columbia Threadneedle. Um, and we created something called the UK Social Bond Fund. Um, I advised nobody to go into it, um, you're... Capital is at risk. Um, um, it doesn't necessarily do this, that, and the other. Um, and anyway, we created the, that, and it really was about creating a more balanced, inclusive economy um, and investing in, in, in corporate bonds. Um, and, and I think that was, it was really interesting because in 2016, that was put on the... Um, um, it, it was available for your pension. You could pick it in your, you can go onto any of those platforms and pick it. And it was, um, it was just something that we thought this is the way to go. So we then created a second fund with Aberdeen Standard, um, which was about uh, creating decent employment in the UK by investing in equities. And all these were, were, were investing without sacrificing a financial return. They were full-blooded listed funds um, and what the big issue does is we, we, we do the methodology. We assess the, the impact of those funds and we share the fees with Columbia and then with Aberdeen. And then we thought, well, we'll go more than that. And with Campbell, we, 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 we created the big exchange. So that really the heart of it is how do you make the financial system accessible for everybody? How do you make the financial system transparent? How do you make the financial system inclusive? So the first product on the big exchange, which we launched a few weeks ago, uh, we've got 36 funds on the exchange from a dozen asset managers. Um, and the combined um, assets of those funds are around 23 billion. Um, we hope it's all in a language that people understand um, and it's accessible to everybody. The minimum fees are £25 a, a month, or you can do a one-off. And you can put your ISA, your JISA, um, your general investment or um, into it. So, um, and, 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 and so that was just a really, and that's the beginning. Um, and, and we're looking now of, of, of having an inclusive um, um, banking uh, banking like open banking um, and we're going to have a, a an ethical financial services marketplace and so it's the very beginning of something that really is we we believe is transformative the interesting thing coming back to what you're saying is we've got uh, 25 corporate and asset manager partners in that we raised two million pounds but actually we've got another five million odd in in corporate support, whether that be 
secondees or um, the platform, the technical build, uh, the legal bills, everything. Um, so there is a huge, uh, huge support for this. It's been quite the journey, hasn't it, from from the, the original idea to where you are now. And I, th- I think for you personally as well, and, you know, from when you first wrote your letter to, to John Bird, I, I don't think you probably saw yourself ending up, um, you know, setting up ex- exchanges and working with... <laughs> no Asik. idea. Absolutely no idea. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, coming back to where we are now, when we, you know, when the lockdown happened um, and the mothership calls, we... We had, you know, group board meetings every day um, and then four times a week and they're now on three times a week. But every day the group board was meeting and, you know, the pull back um, into the mothership because it all um, it all starts there. And I think if you look at the big issue invest and the big exchange and and, and, and other stuff we're doing, um, RORA, which John has done, which is the Ride Out Recession Alliance which is particularly, you know, campaigning around things like, first of all, evictions, and now this huge, you know, the, the half a million or more young people we're going to see unemployed, is how, we, how, how corporates can deal with that, how we create jobs for people and so on. But it all goes back to that trust, I think, the, of what, what the big issue. I don't like the word brand trust. Um, mm. It's something that we're not a brand. It is, it is a mission. It's a... It's a thing, you know, but I think it's the trust of the mission and of the big issue um, that underpins everything. Um, and as, as you say, that longevity of being there um, for that long and being in people's mind, um, then, and that's why people, I think, want to be associated and trust us um, to do these things. And, and you might not like the word brand, but ultimately when people... Um, see that hear the name the big issue you know they are associating that with that mission and with those values and if they're yeah. doing that then the brand's working well for you it is it, it, it is the values and yeah, it's absolutely the values yeah nigel i could talk to you for ages i always can um i know you've got an investor to speak to so i don't want to get in the way of that uh, thank you so much for joining us it's been, a, it's been a really an absolute pleasure and absolute pleasure Thank you very much to Nigel for joining me for that conversation. Um, Some really fascinating insights there. I hope you found it really interesting and very useful. Uh, Nigel Nigel will be back with me on Thursday for our regular short interview, so please make sure you join us then. Uh, And, of course, if you've enjoyed this, please tell people, uh, like and comment, uh, rate, review, whatever you can do to get the word out there and get more people interested in the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.